Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be still and know that you are God. We thank you that as that psalm says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. We shall not fear. God will help her when the morning comes. God, thank you that you are a mighty fortress, that you are a rock, that you protect us in difficulty. You give us security and joy, even in life's difficulties. I pray that you would bless now as we look at uh, this chapter of Ezra, as we see Ezra come on the scene for the first time in this book. I pray that we would learn much from his character because there is much for us to learn from him. I pray that uh, he would leave an indelible mark on all of our minds today. And I pray that you do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wanted to begin with a slide here. And I, I showed this slide a few months ago. I want to try to reorient us to where we are. If you're visiting or if you've been around for this series, we've been working through the book of Ezra. And you can see the various kings who are around in this time period of Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, you probably can recognize at this point, but the story begins with Cyrus's decree for them to return to rebuild, which is right here. We're making this mark in 538 BC. And the temple is completed in 516 BC. So just that little spot is the area we spent most of our time in the first six chapters of the book of Ezra. And now we are going to skip ahead all of a sudden to the life of Ezra himself. He comes in 458 BC, which is right here in this mark. And then his ministry will last through Nehemiah's for a period of a few decades. But we're going to make a big jump, uh, almost uh, 60 years into the future. We're going to actually travel 58 years into the future from our last text last week. And so just very quickly, we jump over, and uh, no longer is Cyrus king, uh, nor Darius, who was king last Sunday when we were in the text. But now we're skipping even past Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes. Remember, Esther was involved with Ahasuerus there. And now we skip straight ahead to King Artaxerxes I, and that is where uh, the, the rest of the story of Ezra and Nehemiah are going to take place. Uh, look with me here. I, I'm going to give you a very simple outline. And... Uh, we're going to focus on, on Ezra himself and the things that he's involved with in this particular chapter. So just very simple outline, four points. It's really Ezra's credentials or Ezra's story, and I want to give you just the four things very simply that we'll walk through. We'll spend most of our time on the second point. Number one, Ezra's lineage, which is mentioned here in these first verses. Number two, after Ezra's lineage is Ezra's resolve, his commitment, his resolve, Number three, Ezra's favor before King Artaxerxes. Ezra's favor with Artaxerxes. And number four, Ezra's favor with the Lord. Ezra's favor with the Lord. So just as a, rem a reminder here, in those first chapters that we looked at uh, in the beginning of Ezra, I want, I want to see if I can paint a picture here, and I'm borrowing this from James Hamilton uh, in his helpful uh, sermon and, and commentary on this chapter. This is what James Hamilton pointed out. I thought this was very helpful. Ezra is split into these two halves, in a sense. You have chapters 1 through 6, and you have chapters 7 through 10. And you sort of see a repeat of structure, but a very different situation. So see if this makes sense here. Uh, in, in Ezra chapters 1 through 6, you begin the story of Ezra with King Cyrus, remember him. And Cyrus, the Persian king, God has moved on his heart to send the exiles home to rebuild the temple, led by Zerubbabel and Jeshua. And in the second chapter of Ezra, remember we get a list of names 
Were you here for that sermon? We went through a whole bunch of names for a lot of verses. So we got a whole list of names of the people returning, of about 50,000 people. And then soon after arriving, the people encounter opposition from the people of the land. And the opposition lasts from chapters 3 all the way through 6 when they finally complete the temple. Now, 7 through 10 is structured in a very similar way. This time it's not Cyrus, it's another Persian king, it's Artaxerxes. But has God moved on Artaxerxes' heart? We are told, yes, the Lord moved on his heart, just like Cyrus. And what does Artaxerxes do? This was not a godly man. (laughs) Artaxerxes was not a good man, okay? But what does he do? The Lord moves on his heart, and he sends people back home, including Ezra and a whole group of priests and others. He gives them permission to go back home, just like Cyrus. The next chapter, Ezra 8, you get a list of names of the people who returned? Yeah, just like Ezra 2. There's a list of names of those who returned. And upon arrival, is there opposition? Yes. Ezra 9 and 10, there's opposition, but you know what changed? If you've been following along, you may know already. The opposition in chapters 1 through 6 was external opposition. It was the people of the land, remember? The Samaritans and others. Where is the opposition going to come from when Ezra shows up? It's going to be internal opposition. It's going to be the sinfulness of the covenant people. And that's far sadder and far more dangerous, isn't it? See, it's one thing to have an enemy outside who doesn't like us for what we believe, and we want to love those people graciously, but Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. It's just, it's going to be the case that people are going to speak poorly of Christians, even when we try to be kind and loving. But my goodness, it is one thing to have enemies outside. Ezra 9 and 10 is going to show us that there is nothing worse than the enemy from within. There's nothing worse than enemy, the enemy of our own sin, of God's people, when our sin gets the best of us, that is the worst kind of enemy. And so Ezra is going to face an enemy within the camp, and he gives a very uh, moving response to uh, all that happens. So we're picking up here in the year 458 BC. We've jumped forward about 58 years from last week, and I will start for us here in Ezra chapter 7, verse 1. This is Ezra's lineage, and we'll cover the first uh, first five and a half verses. Ezra chapter 7, verse 1. Again, this is God's word. Now, after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Bukai, son of Abishiah, Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra went up from Babylon. Now, I, I know today... People have kind of gotten back into your family tree, right? There's those kinds of things you can do online and try to figure out your your family tree. But generally speaking, we don't really know our lineage as well as people did back then. And it doesn't usually have the same degree of importance to us today as it did in biblical times. But in biblical times, to have a lineage like Ezra's meant something. Uh, He is a direct descendant of Moses' brother Aaron, the first true priest in this sense, Uh, Some of his descendants are Phinehas, who was known for his zeal. You have uh, Hilkiah, who was a priest during Josiah's reforms. You have Zadok, who was priest during David and Solomon uh, during their reign. I mean, he's got some heavy hitters uh, in in his family line, and this would give credibility uh, to Ezra. It it matters. But uh, I want to immediately make a point of application about our family background. Again, James Hamilton, several things I'm going to say today. I'm I'm getting from James Hamilton's helpful sermon on this text, but I I want to think about this for a moment. Uh, If you have a wonderful, godly family, so I know numbers in this room came from a family of parents who truly love the Lord, godly mom and mother and father. Uh, They 
had a love for the Lord that was evident. Their care for others was clear and evident, and it left a lasting impression on you, perhaps. And if that is the story for you, uh, we should be humbled by that fact. I mean, you understand, you don't choose whose family you're born into, or if you're adopted, you don't choose that. If the Lord has brought you into a family of humble, godly parents and humble, godly legacy and lineage, praise God, be humbled by that, and benefit as much as you possibly can from having godly parents in your life and in your background. But maybe you're sitting there thinking, hey, uh, my background is not so promising. I, I, I don't come from a family of godly people. I'm maybe the only believer in my family, you're thinking. Or maybe I'm one of a few. But maybe my father or my mother or a number of aunts and uncles or cousins are not believers. And maybe your brothers or siblings are not Christians. Listen, be aware of this, first of all. If the Lord has rescued you out of a family that was not a believer, you have all the more reason to praise God for his incredible grace in your life and to know that you have an incredible opportunity of ministry to reach out to living relatives around you who do not yet know the Lord, to to intercede for them, to pray for them, to plead with them, to love them, to model Christ to them. Use the opportunities the Lord has given you and love those who are sometimes difficult to love in your family. But I want to think about this for a moment as well. Listen to, the, listen to this. Don't, don't have to turn to these texts. If you want to, you can. I'm going to read a couple verses from 2 Kings 21 and 22. If you want, you can turn there. 2 Kings 21, verse 19. And you may remember some of these kings' names. I, know, I don't know if you're like me. When I'm reading the king, first and second kings, I get so confused as to which king was who. I have a hard time keeping up with it. So just to remind you, I had to remind myself, King Ammon, A-M-O-N, King Ammon was a very ungodly king. 2 Kings 21, 19 says this. Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. Only two years. Verse 20, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh, his father, had done. So here's an evil son, and he had an evil father, sadly. He walked in all the ways in which his father walked and served the idols that his father served and worshipped them. So it is true, sadly, that it is not uncommon for an ungodly set of parents to pass on ungodly character traits to their children. That is a real thing that we must fight against if that's your story. But listen to this. 2 Kings 22, the next chapter, you you remember Josiah. I just mentioned him. Josiah has got to be one of my favorite kings in the whole of the Old Testament because of his story. Remember, he became king at a very young age. Listen to these words here. When Josiah became king at, I think, eight years old, remember this? Uh, They couldn't find the law of the Lord. It had been lost, but they lost the Bible. I just have to say, things are not looking good in Israel when they don't know where the Bible is. They're like, uh, guys, we, don't, we lost the law. Like the Torah is missing. And so for years and years, they don't know where the, the Bible is. And they're like, okay, this is not good. So remember Hilkiah, the priest, one of, um, one of uh, the, the, the ancestors here, he goes into the temple, 2 Kings 22, 8. And Hilkiah, the high priest said to the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. He stumbles upon the Torah in the temple. Verse 11. When the king, Josiah, heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. See, that's amazing. His immediate reaction when the Bible, when the scripture is discovered and read in front of him, he is broken over his sin and over the sin of the people. The spirit moves in Josiah and he immediately tears his clothes. There are other kings in Israel's history who do not react that way. Remember when Jeremiah is getting words from the Lord and his copyist is writing them down? 
And they're taken before the king, the words straight from the prophet Jeremiah, fresh off the press, just written, taken straight to the king. What does the king do during the exile? Every time a, a word is read from Jeremiah, the king takes out his knife, cuts off the statement, and throws it into the trash. Excuse me, throws it into the fire that's burning next to them. And every time they read a prophecy of Jeremiah, he cuts it off with a, with a knife and throws it into the trash. You see, our natural default state is to hear God's word and say, I don't care. I don't want anything to do with that. But the Spirit of God is clearly at work. Young Josiah, I think he's 18 years old, he hears they found God's word. The priest gets up and reads it, and Josiah is devastated. He tears his clothes. Now, stop here. Does he have an ungodly father? Yes. A wicked man. Does he have an ungodly grandfather? Yes. Does that mean that the Spirit of God cannot go to work in him? No. The Spirit of God goes to work. Look at verse, this is 2 Kings 23, verse 2. And the king went up to the house of the Lord. So he goes up to the temple, and with him all the men of Judah. You skip ahead, all the people. It says young and old, everybody's there. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book and all the people joined in the covenant. This is a beautiful picture. And I want to tell you, if you come from an ungodly family and you have ungodly parents and ungodly grandparents, the Lord can work mightily through your life, even if you're a teenager like Josiah was. God's word is sufficient to accomplish God's work. Didn't we hear that last Sunday? God's word is powerful, and God's word goes to work. Don't ever say, because of my background, God can't use me. Because of the sins of my parents, God can't use me. No, God used Josiah in a mighty way in his generation, despite the fact that he came from unpromising beginnings based on the life that his father and grandfather had lived in a state of ungodliness. All right, let's move back to Ezra. We'll move to point number two. This is uh, Ezra's resolve. Ezra's resolve. And I want to linger on this uh, point. Can I just tell you the description of Ezra in here? I cannot get enough of it. I just, just, it's wonderful. It is, it is fantastic. I hope all of us are inspired today by Ezra the man. Not a perfect man because no one other than Jesus is a perfect man, but a godly man and one to be admired. Look at this description of Ezra. Ezra chapter 7, verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylon. He was a scribe, think scholar, experienced. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, that's 458 BC, the seventh year of Artaxerxes, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he had gone up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra, this verse right here, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is a copy of the letter that the king of Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for 
Israel. Now, I read this chapter quickly at the beginning of the service, okay? I know I read fast. But maybe you noticed, did you notice how Bible-centered this chapter is? If you didn't catch it, I'll just give you snapshots. Verse 6, skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Verse 10, the law of the Lord. Verse 11, a man learned in the matters of the commandments of the Lord and the statutes. Verse 12, Ezra, the scribe in the law of God, the God of heaven. Verse 14, according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Verse 21, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Verse 25, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand. Verse 25, all such as know the laws of your God. Verse 26, whoever will not obey the law of your God. Okay, I just, I just went through this really quick. Do you hear the law of God? The law of God. The words of the law. A scribe experienced in the law of God over and over and over. This text is saturated with God's word. Why? Because Ezra the scribe was saturated with the Bible. He had much less of a Bible than you and I have, but he knew his Bible backwards and forwards. This man was experienced in the scripture. Now, before getting into this further, I got to make a little parenthesis, a little footnote here, just worth noting. Do you notice here over and over, it says, for instance, if you look at uh, verse six, he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel had given him. This is a simple point. I don't think it's controversial in this room, but it's just a huge shot against modern liberal scholarship. Okay. These are non-Christians who study the Bible, liberal scholars, okay? And what they do is they say, well, Moses didn't write a single pen stroke of the, of the first five books of the Bible. Uh, we have a hypothesis called the documentary hypothesis, and we believe there's four independent sources called JEDP that stand for different kinds of writings, and they're woven together by a later editor, and Moses had nothing to do with it, and on and on and on. This is what you get taught in Religion 101 at UGA. Okay, that, that's just, I sat down with an assistant professor at UGA uh, at a Barbaritos in, in Athens a few years ago, and I said, do you believe the documentary hypothesis? He said, I'm sure of it. I said, that's the problem. <laughs> that's exactly what I was afraid of. You don't think Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Well, here's the thing. Does Ezra believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible? He calls it the law of Moses. And how about this? What does Jesus refer to the first five books of the Bible over and over as? The books of Moses. Luke 24, Jesus says, the, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. So if Jesus believed Moses wrote the first five books, and Ezra, who lived back then, believed Moses wrote the first, first five books, but current liberal German scholarship of the 20th century doesn't believe it, I'm going to go with Jesus over the liberal scholarship on that one. I think Moses wrote the first five books because so did Jesus and so did Ezra. End of footnote, sorry for the rant, I'm going to go back to the text here, okay? But that's just an important point. Uh, I'm going to take the primary sources at face value here. Yes, I believe Moses wrote the Pentateuch the first five books of the Bible. Let's see what we can learn from Ezra the man in this text. Verse 10 is crucial. I'm going to read it again. I think it's worth committing to memory. It's pretty simple. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Now, is that not the most perfect summary of what we should do? You leave out any part of that verse and you'll go wrong. Three things. Number one, he committed himself. He set his heart. He made a res resolution. He resolved himself. I am going to study God's word. By God's help, nothing's going to stop me. I'm going to study God's word. I'm going to know God's word. I'm going to soak in the Bible. I'm going to read it. I'm going to study it. I'm going to figure out what it means. I'm going to compare scripture with scripture and get to the bottom of it. I'm going to realize scripture does not contradict itself, but it complements itself. And I'm going to get to know God's word. He's going to study the, the law of the Lord. 
But we all know that there's a danger in study becoming an end in itself. Don't we know this is a danger? You can have a huge intellectual head and a tiny heart and a life that's not living what we know to be true. That's not who Ezra was. Ezra wanted to commit all of God's word into his mind. He wanted to master it. He wanted to be mastered by it. He wanted to know it as well as you possibly could. Why? Because he wanted to put it into practice in his life first. He wanted to study the law of God and to do it. He wanted to obey it. He wanted to be captivated by it in such a way that he would do what it said. He was not the hypocrite of James 1.22. Be doers of the word and not what? Hearers only deceiving yourself. That was not Ezra. Ezra was a listener to the word, a studier, but he was also a doer. He took what he knew and he lived it out. Not perfectly, but consistently and truly and grew in his godliness before the Lord. And next, he wanted other people to know the Bible, and so he taught and instructed others and led them into a deeper knowledge and love of God's word and helped them to better obey God's word. Think about this. Study without obedience leads to hypocrisy and self-deception, right? Studying the Bible but not obeying the Bible makes you a hypocrite and makes you self-deceived. That's what James said, right? Obedience to the Bible without careful and diligent study leads to a kind of mindless gullibility. Because think about it, if you're you're sincere in wanting to honor Jesus, but you just don't know the text, you don't know what it teaches, you don't know doctrine, you don't know what it says, and you don't want to even try, you don't want to even work at it, you're going to become susceptible to false teaching, to charismatic individuals who have a PhD from a certain seminary, and they're going to sound really good, and they're going to have smooth sayings, they're going to deceive you with hollow and deceptive philosophy and false thinking, and before you know it, a sincere desire to obey God and honor Him will lead you astray into a gullible, shallow sort of mindset. And how about this? Teaching without study and obedience, it leads to shallowness at best and serious error at worst. We need all of them. We need to be committed to God's word to study it. Now, I do feel like uh, I am speaking to people who are in total agreement with me on this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Do you really study God's Word? Do you listen to solid biblical resources about Scripture when you're driving, when you're you're doing mindless tasks around the house? Do you listen to Scripture? Do you read Scripture? Do you have good references, good study Bibles? You can look up notes and cross-references. Do you compare Scripture with Scripture? Would it be accurate to say if someone knew you in your private life, in your private time, if someone really knew you, Would they say, yes, I know you've got many responsibilities and some have more than others and some are more busy than others, but would someone truly say, yes, this person, he or she is committed to God's word, truly to know it better week by week, day by day. They want to go deeper in God's word. Would that be true of you? Are there areas where we need to grow? There's areas I need to grow. Are any of us using our time like we could? It's so easy to fritter away time and make excuses and to veg out and to do things that are just a waste of time. Are we taking those extra hours and minutes and investing them eternally? You may remember James Montgomery Boyce. He died in 2000 all of a sudden of cancer in a very short period of time. He was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in, uh, in uh, Pennsylvania. 
Am I, what, Philadelphia, 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 Pennsylvania. Uh, James Boyce, right before, within a year of his death, he did not know he was, he was near the end of his life. But uh, in 1999, he did a conference uh, at uh, John Piper's church, and uh, he's up there on the stage with Piper, and they're talking. And uh, he said, now he was talking about TV, but this is before we had the phones and the screens, okay? So I'm sure he would have said it differently today. But he said, he said you've got to guard your TV time. Like he just said, basically, get rid of it. <laughs> but, but you don't have to do that. But he's just like, listen, he's like, you've got to guard that extra time. He said, do you know how many hours we lose to the screen? He was talking about a TV in 99. Do you know how many hours we lose? I mean, think about how much more useful we could be in service of the Lord if we knew his book better. Not to be self-righteous jerks who just beat up on people because we know arguments. No, so that we can better feed people truth. When you have a friend who needs a word from God, do you have a word to give your friend that fits the circumstance because you've studied his word and you know what's applicable and right and truthful? Or are you just going to be led like so many by intuition, feelings, what seems appropriate? No, we need to soak ourselves in this book. Don't make excuses. We need to be in this book and to love being in this book and to put it into practice and to be willing to instruct others with what we have learned. Now, I want to say, I don't want to turn into a motivational speaker, but I'm about to for, for like 30 seconds, okay? Be careful. Be, be wary. So uh, I'll say this, hopefully a gospel motivational speaker, but I'll say this. Maybe you say, listen, I don't have the natural gifting like some of my friends do. Maybe you've got some friends, you're like, man, these people, they, they, have, they have a strong intellect, they have a strong memory, they can work through stuff, it makes sense, they, they seem to grasp things immediately, they never forget them. I know, I find it frustrating too when you know people like that. You're like, man, how do you, how do, you do that? But listen, you say, maybe you, I, I, you, you might say of yourself, I have more modest natural gifts. I'm no Ezra. He, he says he was, he was uh, literally in Hebrew, he was quick in the scriptures. He was nimble. He was, he was able to grasp things quickly. You say, my intellectual capacity is just not up at that level. I don't feel like I'm able to do that. Listen, this is not a competition about you versus your friend or your whoever. This is not about you trying to measure up or, or against someone else. It's not a competition. L listen, God has given every single person in this room various giftings. And God is not asking you to have the gifting of another person. He's not asking you to have the gifting of an Al Mohler whose intellect is just off the charts. He's not asking you to have that. Okay, I don't have that. You don't have that. It's fine. That's not what God's, God's not going to measure you against someone else's intellect. God's going to say, listen, I gave you what I've given you. Here's the question. What? Are you maximizing what I have given you by grace? Are you putting in all that you've got? I listened to a pastor. I can't remember the pastor's name right now. I was listening to a pastor being interviewed uh, a few weeks ago. This really moved me. He says, I'm not the most intellectual guy in the world. I'm not the, I'm not the smartest pastor I know. He said, I'm certainly not the most gifted speaker that I know. He said, but here's what I know. I'm not going to be outworked in the text by anybody. He said, I've got limited gifting, but I'm going to maximize it to the full. I am going to study God's word. and I'm going to try to give the people of God as much as I am capable by God's grace. So, so here's what I'd say. We're all going to have different capacities to teach, different areas where we will teach others in different ways. It might be a mother instructing her children. It might be a Bible study. It might be whatever it might look like. But are we investing in those relationships and pouring into others the truth of God's word like we should? I love this quote from Don Carson. Listen to this. There is no long-range effective teaching of the Bible that is not accompanied by long hours of ongoing studying of the Bible. And in this quote, I wrote this one down. I love this one. Effectiveness in teaching the Bible is purchased at the price of much study, some of it lonely, all of it tiring. 
If you are not a student of the word, you are not called to be a teacher of the word, is what Don Carson says. Effectiveness in teaching is purchased at the price of much study, some of it lonely, all of it tiring, but it is worth it because of what we can give to others by God's grace as a result of that. I'm already spending too much time on this point, but I'm going to keep going. You say, that's not a good idea. Probably not. I want to say a word to all of us dads in the room. This is as much on me as anybody. I know how easy it is to fail in this area. I'm not coming at you saying I've got this thing figured out at all. Sometimes I feel like I'm barely holding on. Okay, it's a different kind of thing. But here's what I want to say. Listen to these words in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now listen, this is specifically to the dads and moms. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. I mean, I've heard from you dads in, the car, in this room when you're in the car sometimes with your kids. This is so encouraging to hear. You'll say, I got to have a three-hour drive with my son or daughter this weekend because we were going for something, and an hour into the trip, suddenly the conversation gets very real. My son or daughter is asking me questions. They're about their heart, about stuff coming up in their life, about God, about whatever it is they're dealing with, and suddenly I'm getting to speak truth directly into my child's heart, and we're able to go deep, and it's this amazing thing. Praise God for stories like that. I know that is true of so many in this room, that we want to take advantage when we're walking by the way, when we're lying down, when we're rising up, when we, you could say today, when you're driving in your car, when you're traveling wherever you're going, on vacation, are we taking advantage of times where we can pour into and instruct and love well our children? Many of you know Joel Beakey. He's the great Puritan scholar today. I mean, he knows the Puritans in a way that it's, it's almost frightening how he knows them so well. It's a how how is that possible? But Joel Beakey, this moved me all of a sudden. I'm listening to an interview. This just came out on YouTube, and he's, he's talking about family worship. That's his big thing, family worship. And he, this is what he said. He said he has several siblings, and they got together to thank their parents for how they raised them. He had godly parents, and the parents now are quite old. And they sat down, and he said all five kids had come up independently with what they were going to say to their mom and say to their dad as the one, number one thing they were thankful for about them. And they all, this is amazing, they all said the exact same thing to the mom and to the dad, all five of them, independently, same thing. They, they, all five of them thanked their mom for uh, her uh, private prayer life for them. And all five of them thanked their dad for the um, weekly devotionals around their house. And... Um, his older brother, oh my goodness, I can't even get through this. Joel Beakey's older brother said, <laughs> that I never had to doubt the existence of God growing up. He said, the reason why is because when I was three, my earliest memory was sitting in dad's lap during our family worship and dad weeping over the gospel as he explained it to us as kids. And he said, as a three-year-old, it was immediately clear to me, God is real. My dad knows God. It, it, my dad's tears were validation. He knows God. God is real. I don't have to worry about whether God exists. That's what the older brother said about his dad. How amazing is that? My dad's tears when I was three, he still remembers them as a man. Now, perhaps he's in his 60s today. He still remembers that from 60 years earlier around family devotions with dad leading 
uh, in speaking uh, about eternal truths. All right, let's move on here to point number three. Back in Ezra 7, point number three. Ezra found favor with King Artaxerxes. Now, I've already read this text, and just for the length of time and, and what time it is right now, I'm going to summarize, okay? So I'm not going to read all this. I'm just going to summarize. You can go back and check as I go, and, and, and you can see what you think here. But I, I've got at least eight things that, by God's providence, this evil man, King Artaxerxes, gave to Ezra that were extraordinary things. So if you're following along, verse 11 introduces a letter from King Artaxerxes to Ezra, and then starting in verse 12... All the way to the end of verse 26, that's a long text. From, from verse 12 to the end of verse 26 is a letter from Artaxerxes to Ezra, giving him permission to do everything Ezra requested of him, which was God's hand. Now, I'll just list them really quickly here. Verse 13, he allows any people from Israel, including priests and Levites, to go back to Jerusalem if they want. That's a pretty big permission. Verse 14, Ezra may uh, inquire about Jerusalem and evaluate Jerusalem according to God's word. That's verse 14. Verses 15 to 18, as they return, they can carry silver and gold from Artaxerxes back to Jerusalem along with money to buy animals to sacrifice on the altar, and Xerxes is paying for it. That's amazing. Verses 19 and 20, point number four, whatever else whatever is needed along with vessels for the house of God, you may provide from the king's treasury. So vessels for God's house, verses 21 to 23. All treasures in the area, uh, excuse me, all treasurers in the area must provide up to certain amounts, whatever Ezra requires, so that God's wrath will not come against King Xerxes. 21 to 23. Just let me make a comment on that. Why would King Xerxes be afraid of Yahweh's wrath? The answer is he was pagan. He believed there were many gods. He thought Yahweh was one amongst a thousand gods, and he didn't didn't want that god to be mad at him. So that's why he's sending the people. In his mind, he's just trying to help himself out here. He doesn't want that particular god mad at him, and so he's trying to appease all the gods in his area. Of course, that's pagan thinking. He's wrong, but that's behind the scenes what he was thinking, no doubt. Verse 24, none of Jerusalem's priests or temple workers are going to be taxed or told on the way. And as they return, verse 25, Ezra is allowed to appoint judges and magistrates to assist him in his work, and they must know God's law, and if they don't, Ezra can teach them. And finally, verse 26, it's kind of amazing, whoever disobeys God's law can be put to death, banished, imprisoned, or have his goods taken away. So is Ezra given even the power of the sword, according to God's word, in Jerusalem? That's pretty incredible. All right, we'll move on for the sake of time to point number four our concluding point for today. Do we see Ezra's favor with the Lord? Do we see God's incredible grace on Ezra and the returning exiles? Yes, we do. Let me give you a few key verses to remember. Verse 6, back to verse 6 again. Look in the middle of the verse. It says here, middle of verse 6, the king, that's Artaxerxes, granted him, Ezra, how much of what he asked? all that he asked for. Why would the king do that? For the hand of Yahweh, his God was on him. So God providentially steered the heart of the king in the right direction. Look at verse nine. They began to go up on the first day of the first month and they got there on the first day of the fifth month. So a four month traveling time over a thousand miles. 
And they came to Jerusalem safely. Why? For the good hand of his God was on him. God providentially brought them safely home. Look at verse 27. Here's our concluding verses for the text. Verse 27. Now, Ezra responds to the letter of permission from the king. This is a a pretty amazing text. Verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. God put it into his heart to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his, that is God's steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Do we hear confirmed again the words from Zechariah a few weeks ago? Not, let me get it right, this, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but how? By my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Unless the Lord builds a house, the laborers build in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It's clearly not Ezra. It's God working through Ezra in this time. All right, I just want to conclude like this. As, as great a man as Ezra was, uh, there is yet a greater Ezra to come. See, Ezra came from Babylon to Jerusalem, and that's a long journey, but the greater Ezra came from heaven to earth. Like Ezra, he also had the right lineage. He was a descendant of Abraham and David, but unlike Ezra, the priest, the greater Ezra was both a priest and a king. Like Ezra, he committed himself to study, to obey, and to teach God's word. Yet unlike Ezra, he did so perfectly at every stage. Even as a child, he grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of his God was upon him. Like Ezra, he also came to God's people and found them in a state of disobedience, rebellion, and need. However, unlike Ezra, he did not receive favor from the people or the rulers of his day. Rather, he was handed over by his people to the Roman governor. The people of Israel did not listen to his voice as they had to Ezra's, but rather they called for his death on a Roman cross. As great as Ezra was, he could not by himself take away a single one of the people's sins. But the better Ezra, Jesus, took away all the sins of all those who will ever turn and trust in him. Trust in Jesus today. Let's bow our, hands together, bow our heads together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are truly far superior to Ezra. You are the Word made flesh. You were tempted at all points, like as we are, yet remained entirely without sin. You were treated far more poorly by the government and by the people than Ezra was, and you were lifted up on a cross, and you, the only spotless one, became defiled with our sin as our sin was counted to you. And the Holy One was holy no more because our sin was credited to the Savior, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his stripes we are healed. God, we thank you that 
although left to ourselves, we certainly would not uh, choose to study your word and to obey your word and to teach your word to others. And uh, we, would, we would be left in a state being bored with your word and despising your word had you not intervened in our lives. And so God, we thank you. If we have any love for your word, it is a gift of your grace. And we, we are thankful. I pray God that we could be a true positive influence on those around us, that we could speak a right fitting word in season, that we would speak the truth in love to one another, that we would build each other up in our most holy faith. God, I pray that we would diligently study your word, obey your word, and teach your word to others in the appropriate relationships in which you have placed us. God, help us when we fail. Pray we would look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, so that we would be encouraged in the midst of our lives here. So be with us now as we sing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.